0: Welcome to Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast brought to you by STS Education. We strive to be the bridge that connects communities of educators so that they can fulfill the promise of learning through technology. Join us every other week as we connect with education leaders who share their deep experience with the education and technology topics you are grappling with in your own schools and districts. Each interview is designed to bring you tangible ideas you can start using tomorrow. I'm Alex Inman, the founder of
1: Educational Collaborators, And I'm Bob Sabruti, founder of the Edutech Group. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone. Today's episode is going to be a little different than our others. Our guest today needs no introduction as he is my co-host. The Robin to my Batman, the Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson, the Garfunkel with no hair. Taking a little too far there on this, Alex to my Simon. Alex has been a teacher, technology director, CIO, entrepreneur, And at least he says he's an avid hiker, although I've seen him mostly Uber. His work has received honors as Computer World Laureate, IBM Top Innovator, and the National School Board Association named him one of their 20 to Watch in 2012. I can't say welcome to the show, but I can say welcome to the guest chair, my co-host, Alex Inman. I will add, Alex, you're a fairly decent guy, I must say, too. (laughs) Okay, where's that from, Alex? We'll get the pop reference right out. I believe you are referring to Ed Grimley, played by Martin Short. Totally right. Totally right, Alex. (laughs) Uh, Totally right. So, Alex, normally we have a little talk about our guest. So you sit quietly while I talk about you, okay? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That'll work, huh? That'll work. You're the talker. I'm not. So, Alex, I'm going to ask you this before we get into your story, which is pretty compelling. Alex has shared some of these stories with me is we've traveled together in different schools or different companies. So you'll have to forgive me, Alex. I'm not used to running the show. I'm more the passenger here, and you're the driver. So at times, I'm going to cover my eyes, and you're going to grab the wheel, okay? (laughs) Deal. So Alex, tell me a bit how you go from Marquette to being a technology director. And yes, I know, go Marquette. It's basketball season.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, nice drop of that top 25 basketball team. I got to say top 25 because they keep sliding.
1: (laughs) They do slide a little bit. So anyway, tell us a bit about your story. How did you become a tech director? So when I went to college,
0: there was no such thing as tech directors, right? We didn't have, schools didn't have tech directors. There weren't degrees in educational technology. Schools use technology, but back then it was I'm not sure it was a, even a laser disc. I think we're talking just VHS and. Oh, well, that's okay. Cause I was thinking it was stone tablet. So, okay, <laughs> we're good. And overhead, great overhead projectors. So I actually went to college to create educational films and television. So I studied broadcast technology or broadcast electronic communication was the name of the degree program. And then also secondary education and communication studies. And I had the practice exam for like English and couple other topics. But the only reason I was getting a teaching degree was because I wanted to make film and television. So I graduated in 96 and 93, the internet went public. I think that's right. And so when the internet went public and we saw this crazy thing called the World Wide Web, which we actually referred to it as the World Wide Web back then, I became enamored with the possibility of doing what we do now, right? Which is we take content and we personalize the content for the student's needs. Well, that wasn't really possible then, but I saw that as being possible in the early days of the internet. And I became a little disenchanted with television and film because they were linear medium. Each was a linear medium. And I wanted something that was more nonlinear and more dynamic and more focused on students, but nobody was doing that. There was no job to have after college. So I got offered at this part of the story, I think I've told on previous episodes, part of my degree program in communication studies, I had to do a practicum of a debate coach. And so I was coaching debate at the school and they liked me and they wanted to hire me as their debate coach. They really had no other job for me. And I said, I can teach English. I can teach a little bit of computers. I could certainly teach speech. And they said, do you do computers? And so I knew that he couldn't really interpret that answer, but yes, I said, sure, absolutely, I can do computers. I hadn't had a networking class in my life, Bob. I had no idea what the OSI model was, how to do networking, different layers, none of that. Didn't know any of that. Learned it all on the job because they made me their tech director. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew it was a way that I at least continue to stay connected to how technology could meet differentiated learning styles. And I've kind of made a career out of that.
1: You know, what has struck me is I've heard parts of that before, Alex, you and I go back a few years and we've spent some time in airports and at dinners and stuff. So we know a bit about each other, of course. But what I took out of that is, and I don't think I ever knew how you got from a degree in Marquette to tech director. We laugh and joke and play it out every time we do one of these. One of us is an engineer. One of us is a communications major, and it doesn't take much to figure out which is which. <laughs> but I didn't know that piece about the World Wide Web and interactive education. And it turns out, Alex, you're a visionary. Like who knew? Usually that's my job to, you know, put you in your place, but really that is something stark. That's a differentiator. And it opens up my eyes to how you got to where you are today. And 25 years ago, you saw this path to here and just the rest of the world is catching up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, Later if we talk about entrepreneurship you'll also see that being ahead of your time is not always good for business. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, I don't know. I'm never I'm never ahead of my time for anything, whether it's lunch <laughs> or class or I don't know, meetings. As you well know. So there's a certainly one thing to be a tech director, you and I have that in common. We've both been tech directors. I think your first job was in an independent school, my first one was in a public school. So we're or yin and yang again, right? Well, my first teaching
0: job was actually public school, Milwaukee Public Schools. So I had big district experience. But my first, well, coordinator job was in a Catholic school. And then the first tech director, woo, was an independent private school.
1: They don't let be tech director until you know what the OSI model is. Until then, you're just a coordinator. So there's a whole leap that goes from tech director at a school to founding and growing a company like educational collaborators. So first, what gives you the idea of educational collaborators? So, I was doing some
0: work with IBM Global Services as a subject matter expert. So, I was a tech director to school this time at Whitfield School, school in St. Louis. And I was working there and IBM Global Services was doing some consulting work in the education space and they have like a large pool of subject matter experts. And those are the people who are doing the job and they bring you in to sort of be a credibility chip. And somebody to speak about the topic, but most of the work is actually done by their big, super brain, mega experienced people who command ridiculously large salaries. And I was in this meeting with probably about like six people from IBM Global Services, and they were amazing, amazing people. And then they brought in three subject matter experts, myself on technology, a superintendent, and then a curriculum director, a social studies curriculum director. And so we were talking with a new school, a school didn't even exist, like they were building the school from scratch. And we're talking about them about the program and everything. And one of the things that I always learned from a great principal and did when I learning walks and want to see how our programs are doing One of the things I learned from this principle is always look at the kid's eyes. Where they're looking will tell you what's really happening in the class. If they're engaged in their work, you'll see that. If they're not paying attention, you'll see that. If they're looking past the teacher, you'll see that. Just look at the eyes and make that part of your third-party learning walk assessment. So I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm thinking, where are the eyes? And I look at the customer and the customer was always looking in engaged ways at the subject matter experts now at the end of the table and around this table are some super experts right like decades of experience in large and medium districts and innovative districts authors of books and all that kind of stuff and when i looked at the eyes of the client when a lot of the big experts talked it's almost as if they dismissed them like yeah, yeah yeah i read your blog i'm done i want to know how this happens where the rubber hits the road, and you could see that intensity in the client's eyes during this meeting. And later that day, my son was at a therapy at a school, and I was sitting in the hallway, and I was reading Tom Friedman's "The World Is Flat." And he talks about alternative labor markets at one point in this book. He's talking about JetBlue and how they use like technology to empower alternative labor markets. So they were using a voiceover IP system to get grandmas and grandpas. Yeah, they were to be call center people, right? That was the first implementation of it. Yeah, retirees between their call center, right? And so now you have all these talented people who don't want a full-time job. They don't want a job. What they want to do is work when they want to work and not work when they not want to work. And they want that flexibility. And so when the call came in, it rang all over the country. And if you wanted to get paid, you pick up that phone fast. And if you didn't, you didn't have to worry about it. You didn't have to even check out. It was just sort of like there. And so that technology empowered a very talented labor market to work when they otherwise wouldn't work to do what they wanted to do. And so I was like, huh, that's really cool. And then I was thinking, I had thought I like this consulting that I'm doing for IBM Global Services, but I never want to leave my school. The reason I don't want to leave my school is because one, I love it. I really, really love working at the school. And the other thing was, I don't want to become one of those old industries that people roll their eyes at. And so I said, I'd love to consult, but it would take like six of me in order to be able to do the job of one consultant. And I read that chapter and I'm like, oh my God, how about I find six of me to be one consultant? And so over a Thanksgiving break, I stood up a Linux server, like an online Linux server for like 30 bucks, got some open source software to open source collaboration software and called five of my friends and said, hey, all of you keep your day jobs and then the six of us will work together as one consultant to go meet school's needs. And what was cool is that one, it worked, but the other part was all of these people were my friends, right? Like if I had a question, I would call them. But if I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what I was doing, I didn't bother them. What didn't dawn on me is, just because i don't call them doesn't mean that they don't have an idea that's spectacularly better than how i'm doing it and when the six of us all started working for one external client and all bringing our best to the table and not having to have be asked for it it created this unbelievable engine of innovation that none of us anticipated and so you know it went from basically a proof of concept cuz actually for the record Bob? well this part will not surprise you but for the record none of the original five people that i brought on thought that this was work but they all knew that i was good for at least a beer at a bar to talk about how bad this failed when it
1: failed is your non-drinking friend i can tell you for sure it's good for a beer in a bar <laughs> whatever it is it is so many things i've got questions about so coming up with the idea of educational collaborators, again, didn't know about the Thomas Friedman part. I read the book as well and it never occurred to me that that's a way to go. And then it makes me think like, what about teaching? Like we have a teacher crunch now. Is there a way in which teachers can teach? Because we have a lot of talented teachers who retire because you're either in or you're out with teaching, right? We won't get in deep in this, but you're either in or you're out these days. You teach or you don't. There are some companies like K-12
0: Elevate and some other groups that are kind of doing that, like creating online classes and helping former teachers create high quality online classes. And then the teachers only have to do that sort of support role. And so they're able to pull some people for that. The other thing is my son is a student in the public district here in Colorado, where I live, Colorado Springs, our district, ASD 20, ASD 20 as an academy school, only you with the shout out to your public school. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So they have wonderful high schools and a lot of them are different in their sort of approach. And one of them is called The Village. And The Village is all of your core classes are actually delivered online. And the teachers are just there to answer questions when you need to. And they give you incredible flexibility in your schedule. Now, the electives are usually teacher-led electives. Well, almost everything in that school is student-led, but teacher-facilitated in real time. And so the students are only in class half of the day and the rest of the time they're working together online or working at their home online. And I don't think the village lost a single teacher during COVID because that kind of model is an exciting, different kind of model. So, I mean, now I'm just spouting my opinion on something that you just mentioned, because that's what I do, but I'm not, I haven't had the opportunity to do any of that, say for, well, this is like maybe 10 years before the pandemic. Well, we actually did this pilot probably like 12, 15 years ago. We did a pilot where the students only went to class four days a week. The fifth day was an online day. And so the students came to the library to do that. And we did it for a whole grade level. And then that grade level used their whole Friday for professional growth as a team. And so that way... It was not just individual growth, but all focused on how to meet all of the students' needs across all the disciplines. And it was a pretty cool project. It was certainly left some challenges in the early, early days of online learning. Yeah, and we were doing the online learning that we had to do during the pandemic. We did it 12,
1: 13 years before the pandemic. <laughs> there you are, a visionary again, now. It's a visionary. <laughs> so let's return to Educational Collaborators. So you had this kind of proof of concept. You and five friends who all thought there was no chance this works but there's a good chance it ends with beer. I know a lot of people who sign up for that. <laughs> so you give it a try, you find out that the sum is greater than the parts. So where are you working at that time? And then how does this grow into a business that eventually leads to your leaving, being an employee of a school and working with all these other schools and corporations? Yeah. So
0: first off, that notion of, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Maybe you already knew this, but that's actually part of our logo. Did you know that? I did not. I just
1: noticed the pretty fractals.
0: Yes, right. So it's because when you think of those fractals, those fractals in our logo, it would actually be like one segment of the geodesic dome in Epcot Center. And so if you took one of those, just one of those little segments and pulled it out, it would look like our logo. And so that actually comes from Buckminster Fuller, who was kind of a dorky guy, but he created the sort of mathematical proof for synergy, which is the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. And it was through the isohedron that he proved that. And so our belief as collaborators is that us working together is greater than than each of us working individually. And so we used the segment of the geodesic dome as our logo
1: to kind of as an homage to the guy who created the mathematical proof of synergy. So how do we build the company? And what leads you to decide it's time to dedicate full time to that? One of those founding collaborators was the tech director at the University of Chicago Lab
0: School, Kurt Leining. And he's a brilliant guy. A lot of schools across the country still use everyday math or sometimes referred to as Chicago math. He was the kindergarten teacher on the team that built everyday math. So he's... A legend in curriculum design. He's a legend in technology design. He never accepts this designation, but he's my mentor. He just wouldn't officially accept the job, but I was like some sidekick that just hung around learning from him until then. He was one of our original six collaborators. And when he saw the content that we were creating for that third party, he said, I need to know right now what is the rule with regards to us taking the content we designed third party and bringing it back to our own schools? Do I have to pay for it? Do I got to buy it? Do I have to hire you guys to go and do this? What do I got to do? Because this that we just created, I need that at my school. And so we quickly created a policy that said though you could not claim something as your own that came from the company or sell it on your own. You could bring it back and use it at your own school for no charge. You just had to attribute educational collaborators and that was it. And so what that did is that then created this powerful flywheel of innovation. You got talented people working for a third-party client, making something even better, bringing it back to their own schools, making it better at their own schools, then contributing on a team to bring something better to school to a client school, bringing it back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw that and we saw, okay, this could actually start working. And so I tried to get us more opportunities to work. The challenge is I was a full-time tech director with a pretty busy team. And so sales have to happen during the day. School sales have to happen during the day. Well, I, I couldn't do sales during the day because I was working during the day. And the consulting we could do evenings, weekends online asynchronously, but not sales. Sales is a very synchronous activity. And so I found a co founder, Mike Manning, who had come from IBM, and I hired him from IBM, not global services, but from more of the education team. And then he became my co founder and he managed sales for the better part of a decade. And so came in and ran sales first as himself. And then we started to bring in a couple extra people to do our sales. And then my job migrated from being one of the chief consultants to one of the people who was coordinating the consultants. And I needed to get some money to bring in this guy from IBM. So I started to look for funders, right? And the reality was very hard to find. I didn't know what I was doing. My head of school, which is the private school version of a superintendent, calls me in and I had asked him if I could start this company, told him that I wouldn't let it interrupt with my job. And I said, hopefully it'll actually make me better at my job, which it certainly did. He calls me and he says, hey, do you need money for your company? And I'm like, yeah. I don't know that you should fund me though. Like, that just doesn't feel right. And he goes, no. He says, I'm in this investment group. He says, first off, I don't have the money to do this anyways. But he says, I got a friend who might. This is best part. His friend got money by winning ninth place in the World Series of Poker. So the only person who would take a gamble on me as an entrepreneur is a guy who literally is a professional gambler. (laughs) (laughs) Does he feel to this day that the payoff was worth it? He once told me, he said, this is not my most successful investment, but it's strong. It's been a good investment for me, but it's my favorite investment because I don't get to make, the kind of direct change in the world with any of my other investments as much as I do with Educational Collaborators. And that just made me feel awesome. Are you seeking high quality, highly engaging and low cost professional growth? Explore critical education topics at the Collaborator Conversations Conference powered by Educational Collaborators. This innovative virtual conference features powerful short keynotes followed by engaging conversations among you, the participants, to create one of the most impactful professional growth experiences you've ever attended. Join us February 23rd and 24th for only $50. Register today at bit.ly slash
1: collaborator conversations. So, Alex, now I understand how you started the company, how you have grown it and its application to schools. And I know all of your work revolves around schools, but when we first met, one of the things that struck me was all of the big Fortune 500 companies that you've worked with, that educational collaborators is the trainer of choice or the partner of choice for some of these things. How do you end up with HP and Lenovo and Google and Microsoft? and I mean, literally the who's who of tech.
0: Yeah. So a lot of that credit goes to Mike Manning, my co-founder. So having worked at IBM, he was working regularly with a lot of the big boys. And so actually at the time, IBM had, the easiest partner onboarding program I have ever experienced. It was awesome. Basically, it was a form that I had to fill out. And once I filled out that form, we were able to leverage the relationships that he had at IBM to get ourselves into that education team and then start to say, well, hey, if your customers need help, we're in your books. We're a partner. And so that continued when IBM sold the Lenovo, the PC division to Lenovo. And so All of the people that we worked with moved over to Lenovo and we continued that partnership there. And then when we had that, there were other resellers who were interested. After Lenovo was interested, well, HP became interested. When Google started their PD program, there were originally only six partners. Now there's like a billion and a half, but there were really originally only six. And we competed for that and got in as one of the original six partners. And we've been a Microsoft partner for just about a decade now. And here's the thing. When I started to work with the big companies, I thought I needed them way more than they needed me. And then I started to understand, and they knew this from the very beginning. They make great products, software, hardware, et cetera. They don't know schools. And I, as a tech director, took almost for granted that it's my job to understand how to make that technology meet The needs of my school. Not every tech director's ready to do that, has the capacity to do that, has the time to do that, has the budget or awareness to do that. And so technology gets poorly applied often. And these large technology companies knew what they really needed was a group of genuine practicing educators to help their clients understand how to bridge the gap between their product and the mission and program of the school. And once I recognized our value, it became very easy for me to articulate to a lot of the other big partners and hence why we partner with so
1: many large companies. So isn't that the truth? Like you and I have been through lots of professional development, right? New software platform, new hardware, interactive flat panels. And some guy or woman from the corporate entity comes in to do the training And you sit there thinking, you've clearly never been in front of a classroom before because the eyes are not on that person at the front. So yeah, totally makes sense, right? These are people, that EC, the collaborators of EC are the people who know how to command that attention, how to keep that attention, how to be interesting, how to access those items that are most important to their audience and their students. It doesn't matter. All become students I practice Taekwondo and the lesson there is you're always a student and we are, if we're going to embrace that growth mindset, we're always a student and they know how to teach students. So that makes uh, total sense. So I've got one more question and we've talked about the collaborators, we've talked about the partners, we've talked about how you grew the business, but give us an idea of the types of skills, the number of collaborators, where they're at, because I know it's a big organization. We
0: started with those six, right? Or five plus myself. And- Now we've grown to over 130 collaborators. 85% of them are working in schools today. We have them in 39 states and nine countries. Wow. Yeah. So they're kind of all over the place. And international EC. EC International Worldwide. Pop culture reference? No, can't. I don't got it. (laughs) Stepbrothers. So the other part that I think is kind of important is we have like huge district people from like Miami-Dade, Chicago public schools working with us. And then we have people who are in schools of like 20 kids. So big to small, public, parochial, private, charter, all sorts of different backgrounds. And that's important because what we do when we work in teams is we pick and choose the people who have experience with the different aspects of the challenges that you are dealing with and various lenses that are relevant to your community. So if you say, we are a all-girl Catholic school in a suburban area where Google and Canvas, and we just introduced Seesaw, but we need someone to help us use those resources with our interactive flat panels, which are ViewSonic. Okay, cool. I can put together a team for you. And I get one person who is good 80% on all of those and then fill that team in with the other lenses that are necessary so that when you're working with our group, you're getting the perspective of six brains for basically the
1: cost of one. So now we know how somebody like Alex has managed to grow a company. He actually had a good idea. (laughs) So this is a true story in a conversation in which I was jet lagged and way out of my time zone. Alex shared with me a story about the Secret Service. And I don't remember if the guns were drawn or not drawn, but you had a run in with them. And I'd like to hear the whole story now in my own time zone while I'm coherent. So. (laughs) Please tell us about the Secret (laughs) Service. First, guns or no guns? Uh, Guns, but holstered still. Okay. Okay. Well, then you're only playing around.
0: That's right. So the last school that I worked at prior to leaving to work full-time with educational collaborators was Sidwell Friends. That's a Quaker school in Washington, D.C., and it's known for attracting a lot of children of influential people in D.C., our nation's capital. So I was there during the Obama administration and the two Obama children were there. And so anytime there is that kind of exposure, Secret Service has a presence. So they had an office on campus. And that's not a surprise to anyone because one of the things I always find very funny about Secret Service is they have cars like other organizations and their cars say Secret Service. And so it's not very secret when your car says, Secret Service. And so they were on every corner of the campus because they protected the campus where the girls were in school. And so they had an office because they have a team of people who were there. And we were doing a wiring project, moving our head end from one building into a newer building. And all of the wires went through that old building where the old main head end MDF was. And so I needed to get access to some stuff and I needed access to a panel And the panel was actually in Secret Service's office. And so I knocked, nobody was there. I asked on the radio if anyone knew where anyone was. They had that direct access to us. We didn't have that kind of direct access to them. So I had a lot of stuff to do. So I'm like, those four digit punch code keypads on their door. And
1: I was like, wonder, wait, does this result in a felony that we're recording? I I don't want to be a part of that. You can't get caught for breaking and entering on your own campus. I think the guys with the guns would disagree. (laughs) (laughs) There are some people who might disagree with this,
0: but I punched in a code. It didn't work. I thought, ah, I punched in a different code that I thought might work. And well, let's just say it worked. And I opened the door. Was it Michelle Obama's birthday? Was that the code? It was not. And I'm totally not saying any more about the code. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. It wasn't one, two, three, four. Got it. Amazing. That's my luggage combination. Bob? Spaceballs. Gotcha. There you go. All right. So I opened up the door and a freaking alarm goes off. Now I'm supposed to know if they put alarms on any of the systems in our facility, but they did not tell me. And so an alarm goes off. So then people are running to the secret service office. It's not very good. I'm on the radio trying to tell people, don't let me get shot. This is me. It's Alex. I broke into the office. I needed to check a wiring closet and people come running. They were not happy. And I was advised not to do that, but I was given a direct number that I could call if I needed in there. So I did get that, but God, hopefully I'm the only tech director who's been chased down by the secret service.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I had to pick of all the tech directors in the world, you'd be the one that I would pick. So that's how dedicated our Alex Inman is, is that he was chasing the ones and zeros and he wasn't going to let the secret service stop him. (laughs) I don't think that says about you what you hope it would say about you, Alex, but (laughs) anything for the infrastructure. (laughs) (laughs) Anything for the infrastructure. I just learned the OSI model. I got to get it in here. (laughs) Too many tech director jokes there. So (laughs) I have a question that's not in here. So anybody who listens to us, both of them, I again, mom and dad, nice that you go with the water bottle. For those of you listening, Alex lifted his water bottle with the learning through education logo on it just as i said those that listen to our podcast so those that listen to our podcast know that i might give alex a hard time on occasion he is easy target but as we talk truly like your descriptions of interactive tools for education and tv and film and being linear is like wow like i was lucky to see email coming so truly like visionary like amazing so i think I want to ask now, 20, 25 years later from the late nineties, when you saw this is the potential, where do we stand in what you thought it was going to be like?
0: Well, a lot slower than I guess so far, everything that's happened in ed tech, I don't think any of it was a surprise to me. And actually I spent most of my career frustrated with how long it takes for things to get adopted in education. And Now, the older I get, I understand more of the pause for concern and reflection than I did when I was younger. And I think that's kind of true of just sort of anyone in age, right? But I still remain disappointed with the level of resistance that we have in education to change, right? I started my first one-to-one program back in 1999. And I was like, holy cow, like this is a massive game changer. And it is, right? Like when I, became a teacher in Teachers College, they teach you that you are basically the conduit for all content to the students. You decide what's in the lesson and what's not. You decide how you're going to structure and organize it. The content part, when I saw one-to-one come about, and I'm like, now every kid with a laptop and the access to the internet has access to more content than the combined content awareness of the entire faculty together. So getting content and organizing content, that's not the job. The job is to help people understand how to find, validate, combine content and knowledge to then create new knowledge and then evaluate it and improve it, which is a whole other process. And I was so excited about that and how, One-to-one became such a huge catalyst. I mean, it basically forced you into that model. So I thought within the next five years, everyone's going to have it. It took 20 years and a pandemic for that to happen. And even still, the number of teachers who recognize that this fundamentally changes their job as a teacher is still way lower than I wish it were. And tools like AI, and we've done a couple of fun episodes on that. And I took a biology class called Biology for Non-Majors in kind of a smaller university in the South. And that class, instead of being called biology, should have been called Breaking Evolution to You Gently. Like, here's something that we know a lot of, we see the scientific value in, but it just kind of feels like we just have to gently help you understand this because it comes at such a violation to your pre-existing values and experience. And I think technology is still treated like that. And we're almost breaking technology to our adults gently, while at the same time, our students, and you've made this point in our previous episodes, our students have already accepted it as water. And so the speed with which we are willing to accept and test technology,
1: I'll be honest, it still disappoints me. I hate to say this, but I agree with you. I did not have that vision. I wasn't even (laughs) thinking of education. In the late 90s, I was running from education, done with college. Let's get on with real life. And I've been doing this for coming up on 20 years, so I've got a little time in it. The technology is much further along than I thought it would be. Our acceptance and the use of it is much further behind than I could have imagined. So hopefully, with the help from collaborators who are embracing this change, teachers in public and independent schools who are embracing these kind of change, will start to see that ripple that turns into a wave. Of acceptance and gives us better outcomes for our students. I know I say that as a student who is better at learning in a non-traditional way than those of you who sat at the front of the classroom.
0: Yeah, I usually got sent out of the classroom, but
1: (laughs) yeah, that's for a different reason though, Alex. (laughs) All right, Alex, here we go. The last question or the most important last question in education. So who's your favorite teacher? Who inspired you? I knew that because we always
0: ask the question, I assumed that that question was coming. And so I thought about it, but I did not have to think very long to your side of that bet, which you lost. And that is Janie Roper, Mrs. Roper, my ninth grade English teacher in Garden City, Kansas at Kenneth Henderson Middle School. It was a seven through nine middle school. And Mrs. Roper, she was a very, very bright person and phenomenally dedicated to education at a systematic level not just in her class she lived she lived what she preached in her classroom but her classroom was never enough for her and her advocacy and i remember when she walked into class one day with a t-shirt that said those who can teach those who can't administrate and she was openly mocking her bosses in order to press for the change that she wanted in the district. And so for years, actually, when Educational Collaborators was started, our slogan was those who can teach because it's a tough, tough job. And so I use that because one, it's part of who we are. And that's why we use full-time educators in our consulting group. And that's why that worked. But that I think that came to mind because it always stuck with me that Mrs. Roper wore that shirt that those who can teach those who can't administrate instead of the, those who can do those who can't teach. So it's a pivot on a phrase that is typically used to dismiss teachers. We used it as a phrase to empower teachers because I think they deserve it.
1: (laughs) Well, it sounds like Mrs. Roper is probably a lot of people's favorite teacher. I know she sounds like she would have made my top 10 for sure. Yeah. She was not a lot of administrators favorite teacher. I will tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, it does go like that when you wear a shirt like that. And, and and that's not typically a one-off kind of a thing. So normally this is where we ask about resources, but I'm going to fill this in because I can tell you that you can find more about Alex and what the collaborators can do for you or just their story. Or maybe you are one of those people that wants to be a collaborator. This has reached you and you're like, you know, I've got something I want to share. Maybe you want to be part of that ripple that turns into a wave. So, You can find educational collaborators online, of course. And this is where I'm supposed to be prepared. But those who know my educational background know I'm not. Alex, tell me what's the website. (laughs) Okay, it's www.educollaborators.com.
0: There's an S at the end of that collaborator. So
1: there we go, because there are many collaborators. So Alex, this has been terrific as as I expected, because I do, contrary to popular belief, enjoy spending time with you and getting to know more. And there was lots. In these stories that I learned today that I didn't know before, including how you have seen the development of technology and education, and I suspect we'll continue to be ahead of everybody else on it. And I'll just do what I can to ride along.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks, Bob. It was fun to be in the other seat today. Now, I think we need to have an episode where you are in the guest seat, my friend.
1: Yep. For those people who have a hard time sleeping, tune in when Bob is the guest. (laughs) (laughs) With that being said, Alex, I appreciate you spending some time with me. I appreciate more what our producers do for us now that I've had to do this on my own. And I can't wait till we do this the next time. Thanks so much, Bob. Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast is brought to you by STS Education, a Pacific one-source company. To learn more about how educators can leverage technology to drive successful educational outcomes, check us out at www.stsed.com. Connect with us by searching for Learning Through Technology in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the team at STS Education, thanks for joining us.